All right, guys, here we are. This is the first official Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast, and I'm here with Paul Gillette. This is your co-host, Ryan Anderson. And uh, our very first guest on this podcast is none other than Lance Minheim. Lance, how are you doing? Hey, guys, how are you? Nice to be chat with you. Well, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Lance uh, has an article in this issue called Modeling in the Modern Era, and uh, it's a great piece. And uh, Paul and I are going to talk to him a little bit about it. But as you guys know from our pilot show, this is uh, basically to expand on the ideas he talked about in the article and and get to know uh, Lance more in his model railroading uh, capabilities and what he does. So uh, let's uh, hand it over to Paul and get this thing kicked off. By way of background for our listeners, Lance Minheim, has had over 30 of his articles published in all the major model railroading magazines. He's been a custom designer and builder of model railroads for over 10 years. And as you'll discover when you read the article on this issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist, he's quite an accomplished modeler in and of his own right. Do you have an idea about how many layout projects you've done? I would say um, I don't do a huge volume. I've probably done, probably do about two to two and a half a year. It really depends on how big the projects are. I mean, if it's a little bit larger one, it might, you know, take 11 or 12 months. You know, some of them are only five or six weeks. So it, it really depends on kind of what comes through the door in terms of how many I'll do in a given year. Okay. But I would say 20 is a good number. Okay. Now, do you work in all scales or do you focus on HO? I'm not that picky, but a lot of it's driven just by you know, the scales that are most popular, which is primarily HO with a smattering of N scale. The one in the shop now is N scale, but I've had a few inquiries about O scale, none that really went anywhere. I don't really do the three rail or tin plate or garden railroad, so that kind of narrows those down. Okay. Now, you mentioned these projects can take you anywhere from five weeks out to maybe 11 months for a larger project. You know, when I when I look at that and I try and get my arms around it, on one of those longer projects, and I realize detail can can you know, be a factor in there, but typically is there a, you know, what kind of square footage layout would that be, one of those prolonged 11-month efforts? Really not that big. I mean, every builder kind of does things in a different way. They're not huge. I would say, you know, most of them would fit in a typical basement. I would say an average layout is probably 15 by 15, a larger one you know, is maybe 30 by 40, but nothing that's really absolutely gigantic. I mean, the thing that drives the amount of time is going to be the amount of detail um, that the customer wants. So if you get something that's even, you know, relatively small, if they really want, you know, individual switch stands and custom signs and things like that, that's where the time comes from, not so much, you know, a large physical size. Okay. Now, when you're looking at this, somebody's contacted you, do you, do you go do a site visit so that you uh, see what you're working in? Yes. Once I have a contract. I mean, it's typically, I've already known them for a while. They'll have me do the design first. So we've kind of gotten a, a handle on each other's personalities. And then once they send me the um, design contract, I'll head out to their location and just shake hands with them and get to know them in person and then take a look at the passageways that I'll have to bring the layout through and then also double check their measurements. Okay. So is it during this initial phase where they contact and you're working up a proposal, is that when you start understanding what they want to uh, achieve? You know, I guess you kind of help them define their dream or are they pretty fixed on what they want to do? 
for the most part, they're pretty fixed. Um, a lot of them are prototype modelers. I mean, the, the amount of room that they have or that their wives are willing to give them really <laughs> <laughs> kind of is the defines the boundaries, if you will. But thing to keep in mind is that by the time it gets to the building phase, I mean, we already know each other. Probably a third of my customers I've known personally, you know, just through conventions and friendships long before it got to this point. And then the rest, you know, as I mentioned before, we've already worked through the design and established a rapport. So by the time it gets to construction, most of this stuff has been ironed out already. Okay. Now, as you're, as you're going through this and this back and forth uh, between you and the, your potential customers, do you run in situations where your experience just tells you, you know, what this, this guy wants to do is kind of to be problematic and, and you just see all kinds of red flags. Does that ever happen to you? Well, that happens in the design phase, but it never, okay. it, it doesn't happen, not that often. I mean, generally when I talk to them about what they're going to do, you know, I, my opinion is that they're paying me a lot of money to get the truth. You know, I have an obligation to tell them the truth, whether it's what they want to hear or not. And for the most part, they appreciate that. But, you know, we talk a little bit before we even get into a design contract. And, you know, like anything else, everybody has different styles. And if my style is not going to mesh with theirs, I mean, we usually just shake hands and park, park okay. friends. But by the time it gets to the design phase, it's pretty clear that we view things the same way and things go pretty smoothly from that point. Surprisingly, a, a lot of my ahead, customers are pretty well-known and accomplished modelers that just don't want to do it a, one more time. And those guys are very easy to work with just because you know they know what's involved and they build a lot of layouts themselves. And those, those individuals are super easy to work with. Okay, so if you had to pick an average age, is it like a 40 to 50-year-old gentleman or are you I dealing with like guess more an average age? They are spread out. I mean, I've done some some in their 30s and 40s, but most of them, I would say, are maybe 62 is a good okay. average age. Um, you know, they're getting to the point where they finally just really, they're, they're tired of putting it off and are really ready to move forward with this. Okay. And I can certainly identify with those people who are 62 years old. <laughs> so I understand that perspective. And I, uh, I've got some for younger guys that will say, I want you to build half of it and so that they can copy it. You know, some of them are pretty good modelers as far as maybe in a different field, whether it's scale autos or, you know, there's some really good military modelers out there. So I'll do half of it and then they will copy the techniques on their half. Okay. So that that then begs the next question is, is everything that you do, let's call it turnkey, or do you do up to a certain point if that's what the gentleman, your customer wants? Up to a certain point. And they're really all over the map. I mean, I've done some where... It's not worth just doing the bench work. I mean, a customer can do that, have a carpenter do that. They don't really mm -hmm. need me, but I've done layouts just have the bench work and sub road bed and just the main line without even the electronics hooked up to mechanically complete layouts with no scenery to full-blown layouts with all the details. So the scope is totally customized to what they want to do. Okay. You know, when I looked at the uh, the warehouse you've got on that, I think it's the uh, Miami siding. You've taken some photos, and I've seen those, and you've detailed down to uh, the the cracked asphalt around that little spur line going in there, and there's actually little bits of paper representing litter. So if somebody wants that kind of infinite detail, you're their man, right? Yep, I have done some of those. Now, and realistically, most don't, and that's really where you have to make the differentiation between being a, 
a business person and a hobbyist in that eventually you have to say the project is done and move forward because number one, um, if you give the customer more detail than they really want, you know, you're wasting their dollars. Um, and also it would never get done. I mean, they're going to get tired of waiting for this project. So that was something I had to learn early on is with a lot of these layouts, you know, you, you can't put every scrap of paper on there. I mean, in a tenth of the time, you can get 90% of the way there. It's kind of the 90-10 rule. I have sure. had a few that want that level of detail, though. Okay. Uh, when we were talking before we went on air, you mentioned it's more than just, you know, building a railroad for someone, taking it there and installing it. You said you it's a business and you've got to be cognizant of of everything and at the end of the day, you know, make a money. What are some of the challenges or are they really different from being in business in another area? Well, in terms of a business, you're halfway between being a professional artist and a construction contractor. I mean, there is okay. an element of art there. As a rule, you want to be in a situation where you're not a commodity, where the customer picks you because they want your specific style of, of building and not just based on cost, but not just mine, but I think with every business, the biggest challenge is always marketing. Building the layouts, when you've done this many, it's just really not that difficult. Okay. Uh, the biggest challenge is getting enough of the right type of prospective customers. Okay. The, uh, hey, uh, when you, I'm sorry. Um, Lance. Yes. And when you say that, prospective customers, and you kind of hit on this earlier, but I just wanted to clear it up. Where are you finding these customers? I mean, when you, you talk about marketing, it sounds like it's more word of mouth for you. It's really not. I mean, it would be nice to say, oh, I'm so famous that they know my name and they just call. <laughs> That's not. And maybe some people say that, but it's not the reality. You got to do it the way everybody else does. And I would say that um, probably 80 percent of them are uh, come through print ads. Really? Or okay. people that recognize my uh, byline in an article. Um, and then the other 20% are probably people that I knew previously. Um, the inter internet is great, but the reality is, you know, I've got good search engine listings. People are not coming to me through the internet. Um, they're coming through the print ads. And the thing I found with the print ads is that I do better with the more general magazines, such as Model Railroader, which have a broader net of entry-level people, whereas when I was in the specialty magazines, geared more towards the craftsman, those are more of your do-it-yourselfer types, I did not get the same okay. same response. All right, well, no response. Oh, really? well, the other thing I wanted to ask was how uh, do you, have you done any jobs for somebody who's not an individual, say, you know, a company? I did one interesting job. It was not for a, a military contractor that did landing lights for um, emergency helicopter landings in Iraq. And so I did a small di diorama. That was very interesting, and they were fun to work with. But the majority are individuals. Okay. And individuals, in my mind, are preferable because there is only one decision maker. There's not a board. Right. Uh, they don't have – when you get into a situation where you've got multiple people involved, they're all going to have different things they're trying to accomplish, and they also have budgets. And they're going to be also more driven by – you get more into the commodity mode where you know they want to take bids, and it's hard to convey that. The cheapest is not the best way to go. So, I well, you're selling art, right? It's like, you know, I want somebody to paint a portrait of my family. You don't go out and get the cheapest person. <laughs> right. uh, it's not good. Go to the well school and get a good price on that. But. <laughs> right. 
but I enjoy working with private individuals and they end up being long-term friends that you keep in touch with and go run the layout later with them. So, okay. Uh, I used to get a fair, some customers through these trade shows or the train shows, but attendance at those lately is, it's been a kind of a downward decline for five or six years. So that's been not as good a source of leads as it used to be. Yeah, that's too bad. Is repeated uh, business a factor? Not really. I mean, they get their, um, for most of these people, I mean, they've got their 20 by 20 foot room and, you know, maybe I get it two thirds of the done and 10 years later, they're still working on that last third. So there's not, not really much there in terms of repeat uh, oh, okay. business. The, uh, let me ask you, because I know after you go through this design and you've done the construction now, you know, for the specification what the customer wants and so forth, how, you know, what would be the farthest distance you've shipped layouts you've got to go install? Well, I'm on the East Coast, and mm-hmm. I've done Seattle, Washington, San Francisco, Maine. So I've hit pretty much every corner except for Florida, and I'd love to. I'd love to go down there. Wow. Okay. You'd mentioned that when you look at this and you conceptualize it, you use a yardstick of being able to pick up a box and go down a stairway and through hallways and so forth. When the layout arrives, tell me about that process. How do you just you know, get going there. You got all this stuff on a truck. You got a room. What happens next? Yeah, anybody that thinks this is a glamorous job should go through an installation because that is the one time of the year where you actually do have to work for a living. It's it's stressful from the standpoint that you this thing does have to go back together again and it does have to work. And it's, you know, model railroads don't really like being taken apart and reassembled. So I use a professional mover that specializes in artwork and they really are um, excellent at what they do. We'll load the truck together and you know, just talk about how we want to do it. And then, you know, they'll drive cross country and then I'll fly out and meet them. And then we, um, unload it in a customer site and they will take off. And I would say it typically takes me four really long days to get it set up. The floor in my shop is going to be unlevel and this floor in their house is not going to be level in different spots. So just getting the layout perfectly level may take a full day. And then you've got to pull the joints together and make sure there's no vertical curves or bumps, which is easier said than done. Then you have to, if it's a scenic layout, you have to patch the uh, joints. If there's structures, you have to work those in. I've really had no problems with repairing damage. Then you have to hook the wiring up, make sure that uh, there's no gremlins in the wiring. With DCC, that generally goes together pretty quickly, but there's just just hundreds of very simple connections, so it's time-consuming. Then you have to train the customer in terms of how to use the DCC, and then at that point, you're done. Every, Every job has those things that keep you awake at night, and and mine is finding that I get there and I mismeasured and the layout's a quarter of an inch too big. If it's two inches too small, it's not a problem. If it's an eighth of an inch or a quarter inch too long, it's a and it's a concrete wall on both sides, you have a major problem. Whoa. So I take uh, the hair on the small side and make sure that there's and I tell the customer that right up front that this is gonna be about an inch short on each side and we chuckle about it and it's not a problem. Okay. Well, yeah, thinking of, of that, can you give us a an instance where, you know, it just became a, a horror story and how'd you get out of it? Something where it a, just a, went wrong. So much a horror story, but I mean, there's been some funny uh, cases. I had one guy, I can't remember if I told this on um, the last show, that he was a bachelor and he had a lot of hobbies, one of which was restoring vintage Corvettes. And 
if you get a 1967 Corvette convertible, those things I'm guessing are at least a hundred thousand dollars. So I pulled the truck up to his the back of his townhouse, and my cell phone rings, and he says, "You know this this one, you know I had a." He was a doctor. He said, I got called into the office, but didn't really get a chance to get set up for you. But don't worry, I cleared a path back to the shop. I opened up the uh, garage door, which is my path, and he left me about 20 inches between the wall and this $100,000 Corvette (laughs) to get the layout down to the basement without so much as uh, breathing on that thing. Did you call him to come and move the car, or did you make it happen? He was in surgery, so I had to make it it happen. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, well, you're you're right. Depending on uh, what '67 uh, Corvette it was, it could have been easily six figures. People okay. always ask me that. The movers do it now, but I used to do it myself. And people said, "Well, who would help you?" No, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> and uh, I said, "You know," I said, "Well, the customer." And I said, "Well, how do they feel about that?" And I said, "Well, let me explain this." I said, "When I..." Uh, into the driveway i've got a 60 year old man that's pacing the driveway that literally rips the doors off the truck pull his <laughs> toy out so getting them to get to help me get this thing in the basement is just never was a problem okay I just, they, you know, I just have to say slow down slow down you know we'll get this down there but i can so imagine after a while i'm thinking well one of these guys is gonna blow out his back so i'm gonna you know just not do that and my now my son's big enough that he can help oh you know, okay but like you say central ohio i don't know if any of you remember when they had that storm of the century out there in um west right outside of dayton with the tornado no this was a snowstorm the blizzard oh okay um it's probably eight years ago and i was you know doing the delivery and i got to columbus and the weather was fine and boy you got past colombo there were just cars in the ditches everywhere and i remember looking at the bank it was one degree when I pulled up in front of this customer's house, probably 18 inches of snow, but he was pacing the driveway, waiting for that truck. <laughs> Boots on, wow. ready to get it in the house. Hey, Lance. Yeah. Uh, in talking about delivery, how do you go about moving some of these pieces? Obviously, you know, you, you have a certain way that you pack them up, but I'm more interested in what do you do with the with the the scenery or specifically the buildings, all the structure kits or anything that you put on the layout, do you normally take those off? And Yes, I don't. Um, the structures are the only thing that have to be taken off, and you just pack those in boxes with, you know, styrofoam, peanuts. I mean, what I'll do is these are all individual individual joints, and I'll run the scenery right over the joint, and then, when I, then I'll snap it apart and load it on the trucks. And surprisingly... You know, with the suspension on these trucks, that'll just bounce all the way across the country without, you know, dropping a piece of foam at all. So the only thing you really have to take off is the wiring harness and the uh, structures. Okay. Now, talking about the structures, I've noticed, you know, when we had you on last time, which, by the way, I looked that up. That was uh, on Model Railcat Show, show number 77, where we talked to you about uh, the shelflayouts.com and I think we covered some of the things we're talking about now, but you have structures where, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you've taken photos of the real thing and then scaled it down and made a structure out of it using the photos, right? Yeah, I do that more on the personal side, but I've had a couple where I'll insert those on the, uh, where I will incorporate photographs into the structure, particularly for doors and things like that. Okay, so it's more personal. I didn't know if that was something you found that you did to speed up the process or something. That's more on a personal side. And also when it comes to structures is, 
most of my layouts are not 100% complete. And favorite part of the hobby for a lot of people is the structure. So it's common, they'll, even if I do the scenery, I'll just leave a pad and they'll do their own structures because that's the part of the hobby they enjoy the most. Okay, well, if you're leaving an area, that means that was part of the planning process. You you and the customer already know what structure may be going there. You've already made that selection. Right. Okay. And sometimes what they'll do is send me the kit, and I'll put the foundation into the layout and then put the lid back on the kit, and then they'll build around the foundation. Oh, okay. Now, just out of curiosity, man, uh, are there uh, – let's, let's see. What layout uh, have you built where you've had some uh, super well-known or very expensive kits? Not really. Um, a lot of these guys are – the ones that are really the craftsmen – structure builders have done that themselves the rest have been pretty much kit bash you know traditional kits that you, know, you would see before i try to break them up a little bit so they're not so obvious but okay i haven't really done any you know really elaborate craftsman structures okay or you put the layout together and you never get to see it <laughs> because right. they do that after the fact okay and they, a lot of times these guys will send me pictures of what they're doing you know with the buildings after you know i, I keep in touch with them over time and they send me pictures of the layout as they add their own structures to it cool so what kind of um what's your do you have a money back guarantee right now i figured as much <laughs> occasionally that is an issue that particularly with the beginners it's you ask them what they want and they say well just make something that looks nice well that's always dangerous because you're dealing with <laughs> personal taste and that's you really solve a lot of problems with a good contract, not because you want to get into a legal thing, but it really forces p people to understand what they're getting, and any problems can be you know addressed before you get into things. So by having a contract saying, you know, this is what I think you said you wanted, and then if they say no, then you can adjust it. So you, I really haven't had any problems, you know, in those areas. It sounds like you went down the right track, and and using a contract, yeah, you know, a statement of work makes a lot of sense. So because you're doing that. You also have, um, do you get into like change orders? No, but I make it pretty clear. The changes stop when I put in the contract that people would be uh, charged for them in terms of uh, once they would be charged um, for me to remove what was already built, and then they'd be charged a second time for me to put the new thing <laughs> okay. uh, in there. Early on, there were a couple individuals where the changes really got out of hand where, you know, it was a situation where, you know, move this tree to the left. I want this structure repainted from buff to a little bit darker brown. And this that was, a I think, the second contract. I realized really early on that, you know, I needed to tighten up the contract, and that got everybody on the same page pretty quickly. Okay, cool. And I also, I really don't like getting into nickel and diming. I mean, I don't have these dollar values so tight that, it, you know, if a customer wants a little something here or there, I just throw it in without charging him or, you know, affecting me that much one way or the other. I don't want to send out a change order for that just doesn't look good. Right, okay. Well, Paul's got another great question on here that uh, – did, did you skip over that question, Paul? You Which were talking that? about construction, and you wanted to know some of the uh, techniques involved. I would assume what you do, Lance, as far as your design uh, is, is at least specific or unique because you know you're going to move it. Yeah, that's one of the questions I ask a customer when I do the design is, are you going to build this or am I going to build it? Because it changes the design a little bit. I mean, 
you can have if the layout is going to be built you know on site you can take more liberties with the flowing track and what you're going to do with it um if i'm going to build it you have to be a little bit more aware of you know where am i going to put the joints and the modules and it i wouldn't say it makes a huge difference but you pay attention to it a or look at it in a little different light if you're going to be building it yourself and transporting it because one of the most important construction decisions is where you put the module joints. You don't want them to be in the middle of a curve, and so you want to be in a situation where you can keep the pieces small and still have all the joints being on a straight section of track. Does How that do you... Uh, oh, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to, along uh, that line of uh, thought there that Ryan brought up, so how do you leave the, the track joints open so that when you re or reconstruct this on, on site, you know, what kind of track work do you leave yourself to do? Essentially, I'm trying to think how I'd explain this, but a lot of the HO projects, we'll just take that since it's the most popular scale. I either use Atlas Code 83 for people that are not super picky or microengineering, and I would say the Atlas Code 83 is the most common. Um, at the joint, I would just butt the two pieces of flex track together, and then Atlas makes a component called an end tie which allows you to put a joiner at the end of the uh, track and have the ties kind of wrap around it. So I'm not sure I'm explaining this clearly. But no, no, I, just, I understand. I, the flex yeah. track joint would be at the module joint, and then you just pull it apart. And okay. when you get to the site, then you just slowly pull it together. If you've only got one or two pieces of track, it's easy. If you've got a yard with 11, then you got to have all 11 pieces come together and have the joiners mesh. It's time-consuming. Okay. Has that ever come up in a, in a curve? You know, where you've got to, no, you, you're you forced to a joint? No. Okay. I, I just have too many concerns about um, doing that. Because what's going to oh, happen, I, I then agree. all of a sudden, you're going to end up with a kink there as soon as you cut it. The only way you could um, do that, Paul, is if you used, um, say, for example, Atlas sectional track where you have the rigid curves. Yeah. That, that would work. But anything larger than that, um, you're going to run into problems. Okay. Well, no, I agree. I just wondered if you probably try and design around that when you configure this so that you don't have track joints in the middle of a curve somewhere. Right. Now, you, okay. you mentioned Atlas track a few times, Lance. Is that typically what you're using or is it up to the customer? Well, I mean, this is not an advertising plug, but um, in my business, these things have to work perfectly. And some of the customers are accomplished model modelers. Some don't have the modeling ability to fix a problem. So there's a fair amount of stress building these because the layout, unlike what you build for yourself, has to run perfectly forever. And you know, whether it's a plug for Atlas HO or not, I mean, their stuff is pretty darn reliable. So it, that's pretty much the go-to track I use for these. Okay. Some of the more accomplished modelers will want microengineering, and we can work with that. Okay. Now, um, another curiosity question. How many of these layouts uh, that you've constructed, whether you've delivered them, you know, disassembled or built at the location, uh, have duck unders? A fair number. <laughs> um, I'm not a real believer in gimmicks, but the one exception is the duck under. I think that is the one design compromise where the, the payoff is so large that you have to look at it. Um, really? Okay. Well, that's... I think that, you know, particularly for those that want a pure design where the layout only goes through a scene once, you're almost forced to have an around-the-wall center peninsula design. And unless the stairs come into the middle of the room, unless you're that lucky, you're going to be forced with a duck under or a very simple lift-out bridge, which I generally do more often. Okay. 
and usually a left out bridge. And along those same lines, have you done double decks or are they all single deck? The double decks have not come up that often, so they've been all all single deck. I've had some with staging below, but other than that, I think they've all been single deck. Okay, and one other question that I meant to ask earlier, when, when you're for the railroad, well, but when you're designing it and you talked about having to level the, the bench work, is there something, some secret tip that you can tell us that you use for that, You're like the screw-in feed or something? If you find one, let me know. I'm in the market. <laughs> I thought yeah. maybe you would use those. You know how you can drill a hole in the bottom of a, say, 2 by 4 or something? Yeah, it, what I use is a, uh, if you take the 2 by 4 you're talking about, I use a T-nut, which you can get at Home Depot, and a carriage bolt. Okay. So you'll drill, I don't know what the size of the bit is, you'll drill a quarter-inch hole in the bottom of the 2 by 4 you'll tap the T-nut in, and then you screw the carriage bolt into the T-nut, um, and then that you thread it in about halfway, and then you can level from there. So that um, is what you do. Okay. Yeah, and if, if there was a magic way to speed that up, it would be nice. <laughs> it would be great, right? Okay. Then you add into a customer that's got a layout on carpeting that's new, and it starts to sink in. You level it, oh. and it starts to sink into the carpet. And <laughs> like I said, it's not all glamour. Well, speaking of that, how, how, how many times had you had to go back and visit the layout? Once. Once. Oh, wow. Just once. Wow. And you learn from that when you pay the airfare to go back. I mean, it was clearly my fault. And I would pass this on to any modeler. The biggest mechanical pitfall you can make is not leaving adequate room at the rail joints. I mean, you can have a fairly big gap, and the wheels will clunk down, but they'll pop back up. But if you put the joints too close together and the temperature in the room heats up, the track is going to buckle. Ooh, um, yeah. That's what happened in this case. I mean, the guy called me up, and I could tell from talking to him that I had um, buckled a curved turnout that I had not allowed a big enough gap, so I had to fly out and replace it. Oh, wow. And so you do that once, and then it yeah. kind of sticks in your mind. It's like <laughs> sticking a, your finger in a light socket. You do it once, you don't do it twice. <laughs> right. Every joint from there on out, you pay attention. What do you try and leave, like a 16th, uh, 37 yeah, about, what? Yeah, about a 16th, uh, 30 okay. seconds. When in doubt, leave a little more rather than a little bit less. Well, this okay. is, this is Are you soldering joints? Never. Never. Okay. No. Really? I don't think. Generally, I'll have a feeder about every six feet, which is every other rail. And mm -hmm. when I do testing, I'm noticing that I just have a few feeders up, and these things are running really well without connection problems. And then, So even if, if the trains are running pretty close to perfect with only 20% of the connections, by the time you add the other 80%, you're getting the power back fed from so many locations. And you know, with modern locomotives having so many pickup points, you don't really run into dead spots. But it, how are you uh, doing the the feeders? How are you are you like soldering to uh, a rail joiner? Are you running up uh, soldering to, directly to the rail? Um, well, I try to bend a little hook and it's and nestle it into the web and then file it down. Okay. Just to understand, uh, Lance, are you not soldering if you're laying sectional track or even flex track? Are you not soldering the uh, when you're joining two pieces of track together yes and that goes back to what i was saying before is that particularly with a new layout they move a lot particularly over the first couple of years you're going to have the um the wood is going to be shrinking you're going to get the heat in the room which is going to make the rail expand and it, the thing has to be able to move around a little bit or it's going to buckle so you just make sure those joiners those metal joiners are kind of tight right okay all right 
Well, in, in your designs over the years of doing this, um, can you tell us about any uh, particular layout that you designed that had some super complex track work? No. no. And I guess <laughs> I, I probably get pretty annoying at that, but you know, everybody has their, I guess, their own design style or their own philosophies, and uh, I'm really more on the uh, keep it simple. The, the simpler you keep it, the more reliable it's going to be, the better it's going to run. Now, I did do a, a project recently that was pretty interesting where this gentleman wanted an exact replica of the uh, track coming into the Richmond, Indiana station. He had all the track charts, and that was pretty involved, uh, but nothing with double crossovers or anything like uh, the Tim Warris. Um, <laughs> right, okay. Like yeah. that. I mean, it was, it was denser, but it was not that, not that difficult. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, it makes, it, it makes sense to keep it simple. And the one thing I always tell them on the design is I can draw whatever you want in a couple of minutes. I'm not the one that's going to be building most of these designs. So before you have me just run wild with this computer mouse, just start, maybe you want to think through what's going to entail on your end when you start putting it together next year. <laughs> and then they start trimming. Yeah. Okay. Well, when you're of the ones, it sounds like you've done some designs and not necessarily built. That Actually, I do probably four times as many designs as I do construction. In really? terms of okay. actual volume of work, I do a lot more designs. I'll be many times over. Okay. Well, along those lines, uh, what is the largest layout you've designed and what is the largest layout you designed and built? Boy, that's a good question. I'm trying to think in terms of largest, uh, maybe a 20 by 60. Wow. But that one was not very hard because he was a prototype modeler and there were, you know, long stretches of straight track and long sidings. So just because it was a large layout, it was, it was easy to design. Um, the harder designs are where the person has a small amount of space and they want to do too much with that. Right. Um, so those are, and in terms of the largest I built, maybe a 40 by 40, but that was a simple layout also. It was a lot of straight stretches of, you know, where I'd have two or three modules with just one track going down the middle, you know, is a kind of a, Indiana theme, so even though it was physically large, it was pretty easy. Makes sense. Okay. Very cool. The most time-consuming ones, again, are the ones that you know where there's a lot of detail work or a lot of scenery on them. Well, when you're when you're doing, since you do more designs than design and build, uh, do you find you still have to go visit the location for just doing designs for people? No, I won't do that. Okay. I mean, it's just two time. Usually what they'll do is, um, particularly at the age of technology, is they can take photographs of the room. Sometimes I'll have them do that just so I have a better sense for it. But the design is not something that you, if they're going to be building it on site, even if they were off by two or three inches on the length of a room, really wouldn't change that. It would be pretty easy for them to work around that. Okay. So the only time where you really have to have perfect measurements is if you're going to be building it off site. You know, designs are basically guidelines. You don't want to be too married to the just because it's on a nice computer printout, you want to, don't want to be that married to it that you can't make adjustments. Right. Okay. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, Paul, you got anything else? Yeah. One, one last question. Any famous clients, and you don't have to name names, but we know Rod Stewart is a, is a big model railroader, and there's other people. Have you ever done a celebrity? He was, um, yeah, and I still keep in uh -huh. touch with him, although... Um, you know, all I can say is that he was a song composer, and if you heard his music, you would instantly, you wouldn't know his name, but you would instantly know the song. And for some, there seems to be a connection between musicians and model railroaders. Hmm. Um, but yeah, this guy, he is a, this individual who's a song composer, and he, 
he's gotten out of the commercial land where he did a lot of very famous commercials you'd recognize and he's doing more on Broadway, but yeah, he was a super nice, nice person. Um, some people that are more famous, I guess, in the business world, but most of them are just like you and I. Okay. So yeah, I'll give it like two scoops of raisins in every box of raisin brand. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah. You wrote that jingle. He did. Yeah. I asked him, I said, uh, must be hard doing you know coming up with all this stuff he said no it's not he said, they're just, <laughs> he said they're just flowing through my head all day long i just write them down as they flow through my mind that's amazing I mean, some people are just given that god-given talent they sure are right. well lance thank you so much for your time i appreciate it oh thanks guys i appreciate it yeah lance uh real pleasure real honor to talk with you okay well you guys have a nice night you too Okey-doke. all right take care good night Bye.